All right, let's turn to our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. And we're going to look at Acts 6, 8. This is part 2 to last week. 6, 8 through 7, all the way to the end of the chapter. We will read bits and pieces of this to highlight the movements of the passage, to give you a, an overview and a good flavor for what's taking place here. It might be a little long, as I said last week. If you need to sit down, please do. This is the way we're going to begin. I want to say just a couple of things. There's, there's interesting discussions that go on when you're in my call, and that is on preaching and how do you preach. And it's very fascinating to me that as one who is thoroughly committed to a biblical, what I would say is the biblical view of preaching, which is a redemptive historical preaching, that the first three sermons in Acts are redemptive historical sermons. So if we want to look and find forms on how we're supposed to preach, you do very well at looking at the sermons that are preached in Acts. All right. Writer Anne Lamott tells the story of a little boy. And this little boy was locked in his room. And as all little boys locked in his room, fear began to rise. Panic, almost uncontrollable, started happening. Yelling and screaming for his mom telling her to open up the door. The monsters that were under the bed, the monsters that were in the closet, they all come roaring out in the boy's imagination, don't they? And what she writes about, though, is that this mother got by the door and stuck her hands, her fingers underneath the door and found her son's fingers and they locked hands. And the boy was calmed and the boy was actually comforted while the locksmith was on his way. What we're going to see and what we've seen in this particular passage that we're looking at, the point of this passage is that God finds you. And he finds more than just your fingers. He finds you. Now, we've seen through this passage that there are three people in particular that he finds. He finds those who are far away in Abraham and in Joseph and Moses. And through Abraham, he ends up reaching a whole nation. We got through Joseph and he reaches these 12 sons and we get to Moses and he ends up reaching the Israelite nation. And what we find in Abraham is that though Abraham was far off, remember he was far off spiritually, he was far off geographically. Spiritually, he was an idolater right after the Tower at Babel. And he was in a place called Mesopotamia. So he's even far, he's out of the garden. He's completely far away from before a promised land was even promised. And then you move on to Joseph and you find God finding Joseph in the midst of tremendous affliction. Being sinned against horrifically by his brothers. Being dragged out of the promised land by Egyptians and taken to Egypt. And being out of the land was to be under the curse. It was to not have God's favor. And and God finds him. And then we finally, we saw Moses, that Moses, while he was helpless, three-month-old infant, exposed on the Nile to crocodile and drowning, helpless, hopeless, unable to save himself, God finds him. And then through Moses, he finds a hopeless, helpless, unable to find themselves people. The Lord of glory finds you is your greatest need this morning. Every one of us, it's our greatest need. Now, there are some of us here 
that think we're too far from God to be found. There's others of us here that are far from any peace and far from any comfort and distress and affliction is a very close friend. And you're here desperate that would God find me this morning. And there are others of us who are far confident in our ability to keep God's law and live righteously before God. And this gets in the way of God actually finding you. So the point is God finds you. And even as we begin to hear this text, I want you to rest in that point. I want you to rest in the fact that even as you're hearing these words, that this passage is here and it's designed for God to actually find you. So you can put down your agenda of trying to find God this morning. You can put down your agenda of trying to maintain your relationship with God this morning. God finds you in this passage. You can put down all your efforts at trying to be findable in the hopes that he will finally draw near and finally give you the grace and the mercy that you need for whatever you're facing right now. God finds you, and it's a powerful point. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Verse 2 of chapter 7, we see, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So God finds Abraham. Drop down to verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. There we find the Lord of glory finding Joseph. Now again... The Lord of glory finds Joseph, and through Joseph finds twelve sinful brothers, saves them. Undeserved mercy, undeserved grace. And even right here, though, we get the beginnings of a pattern that seems to be persistent in Israel's history, is that they keep leaving God's presence behind. Though God is pursuing and seeking, Israel has a pattern of leaving God's presence behind. Okay, and even the tabernacle and the temple themes start pulling that out. Now go to verse 17. In verse 17, but at the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and they multiplied in Egypt. And now we're moving towards Moses and God finding Moses. And you can see where it said that, verse 20, at this time Moses was born, he was beautiful in God's sight. That's a picture of showing that his delight and his favor and his grace was put on him. It's not that Moses was physically beautiful. It was that he was beautiful because God had set his love on him. Okay. Now, throughout this dialogue that's going on with Moses, Stephen's going to answer the charge that he's supposedly against Moses. And he's going to answer the charge that he's supposedly against the law. And what he ends up doing is saying, who's really against Moses? Look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. So he's turning the polemic back on them. They're the ones that are rejecting Moses. Then about the law. Who's really against the law? Verse 38. Well, this is the one who in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Sinai and with our fathers, he was receiving what? The law, the living oracles given to us. 
Now our fathers refused to obey him and they thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods." So going on, who's really against the law? See what he's doing here. Now go down to verse 44. In verse 44, we're establishing the right understanding of God's presence finding you. That God is not in a box. He's not just confined to the tabernacle or to the temple. And he tells us here, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. All right, now go over to 51. And we get this unbelievable, smooth, winsome application. You ready? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Again, that's an unbelievable transition, isn't it? I mean, it's coming around a corner and wham! Hitting them right in the face with this. It's very interesting. It's another lesson possibly on style and delivery and preaching today. Who knows? Now, let's go down to verse 54 and through 60. And what we get here is the results of what's happened to Stephen's sermon. In other words, this is the greatest unfinished sermon ever preached in the history of the world. He never gets done. He never finishes. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth in him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. O High King of Heaven, we do come acknowledging that You find us, ultimately, all of our searching and our striving and our trying at times seemingly doing well, and at times not. And yet at the end of our searching, we find You already finding us. So, oh God, I pray this morning that You would find us in Your Word. And You would send forth Your Spirit to do this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look at Acts 1 and Acts 4. This tells us that the Lord of glory is on the move. We're seeing in Acts 7 the sermon, and we're seeing the results of the sermon is in Acts 1. And you find in Acts 1, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. And you go down to Acts 4. 
Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And what we find here is that the Lord of glory is on the move. He's advancing. He's moving forward. He's finding his people throughout all the nations. And what we see here is that we were forewarned about this way back at the beginning of Acts. Remember in Acts 1.8, Jesus was telling the disciples and telling the apostles, forewarning them that there is going to be a dam that's going to break in Jerusalem and the grace of God is going to rush in all over the world. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all of Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. That was the promise, remember? Well, now in Acts 7, this sermon breaks open the dam and the Lord of glory advances to the nations. And so what we did last week is we took the point And we looked at the power of it, that the Lord of glory finds you. And we saw that the Lord of glory has a history of finding his people throughout redemptive history. As Stephen goes back and he narrates from the very beginning how the Lord of glory is pursuing and finding his people. And he finds them through redemptive agents. And we get pictures of of what the redemptive One will look like, don't we? And so we go through this redemptive history and we get to the fact that now at the brink of the redemptive history, the one that they all point to has come and he's king and he's going to find his people in the nations. And so we looked at the power of the point. Today, we're going to look at its impact. In other words, what does it look like when the Lord of glory finds you? What does it look like when the Lord of glory advances into areas of your life? What happens? What's the, what's the, that sound? That's what happens. And what happens when that happens? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And our goal through it all of looking at the point's impact on you is that all of us would grow in resting in the Lord of glory finding us. So you want to know if you heard the sermon rightly. When you leave here and you wonder, what am I supposed to take out of here? What's supposed to be embedded in my mind and fixed in my heart? How do I know I I heard this passage rightly? You've heard this passage rightly if you walk out of here saying, I rest in the Lord of glory finding me. More so than I did when I came in. And I can rest in the Lord of glory finding me in this particular area. Okay? Do you think we're ready for this? I think there are seat belts in your seat. You just might want to click them a little bit. Okay? All right. The first person the Lord of glory finds is the religious heart. Now, before we go any further and looking at the religious heart, I will be the first one to say, I am the religious heart. So if you're like, Pastor, you're like, you're like uh, a little too, you're a little too close. And I'd say, well, this passage is a little too close for me. Okay? The religious heart. Look at Acts 6.14. Acts 6.14. For we have heard that him say, Stephen, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Stephen's teaching is being heard by the religious heart as being against the law, not loving the law. 
Now we know that Stephen stands in great company because even the one at the end who they're laying their garments at his feet is a guy named Saul. And Saul eventually becomes who? Paul. And he writes the greatest theological, the greatest book in the Bible, probably. And that's a tough thing to even say is the book of Romans. And in Romans, Paul is accused in his teaching of being against the law and not loving the law. So Stephen stands in good company. There's a man named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Some of you might know who he is. He's been called the last great Puritan preacher. He died in 1981. He wrote a book that's one of my all-time favorite books on preaching. It's called Preaching and Preachers. And I put it where my, I kind of rank my preaching books. You know, and I, I, it's interesting. When I'm ranking my preaching books, the old ones are near the front. And the more contemporary ones get further down the line. Just some insight for you in my library. But this book, Preaching and Preachers. And in this book, Preaching and Preachers, he says to, he's trying to reclaim a passion for preaching in the church and a passion for preaching in preachers again. Because he says that the passion is like a, it's like a pilot light in the furnace. It's just barely flickering today in Christianity. The passion for preaching in the church and in the preacher. And he said, gentlemen, you know you've preached the gospel rightly. And you know you've preached the glory of grace truly. When the religious heart comes up to you and says, you're against the law, you don't love the law. Now, I want you to look at verse 51 of chapter 7. Look at 751. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And here's the punchline. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. The religious heart thinks he or she keeps God's law. Here, this is Stephen's application, right? His application is taking place right here. He's saying, look, you think you keep God's law. You think you've been keeping it. And I've just traced a long history of you not keeping it. You think you keep it. But you don't keep it. That's his application. But the exposition of this application happened way back in verses, oh, where is it? 38 through 41. And here's the stunner of the exposition of the point. While, while God is giving his law to Moses, Israel is disobeying the first commandment. While he's receiving the law, they're making an idol. Do you see that? His application is the religious heart thinks they keep God's law. Now, I want you to watch how Stephen exposes what's the driving engine behind our thinking that we keep God's law. I want you to look at verse 41. Look at verse 41 of chapter 7. Here's his answer. In the midst of his exposition of, of Israel failing to keep the first law of God's law while they say they like the law and love the law. 
And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol. They were rejoicing and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. There's something extremely intoxicating in the religious heart. And what's intoxicating in the religious heart is that we actually think that we have God and His blessings in our hands. That we have this deep satisfaction an intoxicating feeling that our work of our hands holds God's favor and His love for us and His blessing for us. And that's immensely satisfying to be in control of your own salvation. I mean, you want to talk about an addiction. You know, I, I, I'm in control in how well I'm doing. And how God sees me. And so I do things like if I follow these spiritual steps, I can bring God's presence and His love down to me. And I can bring His blessing down to me. If I just punch in these spiritual principles, I'll get perfect children. And then my parents had Pete. (laughs) If you live by this list, if you live by... See, I was the firstborn. Did you get that? Okay. <clears throat> yes, I am. Live by this list in this area. Live by this list in that area. If we live by this list in this area, if we live by this list in that area, we mark out what an obedient Christian looks like. And we also mark out who's in and who's not. And that's why Paul said in Ephesians, that stuff is a dividing wall between you. Your lists. Now, Steve Zimrick is a deacon at his church in Granville, Michigan. The other day, he's walking down uh, the school, the Christian school that he's at with his eight-year-old daughter. And they're walking down to her class. He's taking her to the class. They come around the corner, and they see a teacher in the hall giving the riot act to a student, just grilling him. And as he walks by, he drops his daughter off at the class, turns around, comes back. The teacher still... In this young man's face, grilling him. Why did you lie about this? The teacher saying to the child, why? Why did you lie? I asked you a question, young man. Why won't you tell me why you lied? And all the boy could muster, he said, was a humiliated look on his face. Didn't even respond. And as Steve was walking down, he answered the teacher's questions himself. In his head. Now, I would, have, I, would have, I would have been a better story if he would have said it out loud. Can you imagine? Because this is what he says. He says, I wish the teacher would quit embarrassing. No, he said, here's the question. Why? Why'd you lie? The same reason you and I lie. To get away with what we've done. To cover up what we wanted. That's why. And then Steve thought to himself, I wish the teacher would quit embarrassing the kid and just dole out his punishment and be done with it. Now, as he continues his article, it's very interesting because he's going to do is he's going to make a little shift. He created a little parable and what this happened at the school is a parable of today's Christianity, a parable of Christianity today. The Christianity today could probably characterize more of the religious heart aspect. 
And he does so, and he wants, to in, he wants to put in language like reformational Christianity. And I'm just going to do away with that language, and I'm going to put in biblical Christianity. So I've inserted some things in here to make the reading more smooth for your hearing pleasure. The religious heart pulls you out of class and into the hall and berates you for being what you are, a sinner. But the biblical version of Christianity preaches the law to you without any fanfare. It just pronounces your just sentence of punishment. You're guilty. It doesn't wag its bony finger in your face and ask obvious questions. Why did you lie? Why are you lying? Why are you a sinner? There's no long, awkward pause for you to plead your own pathetic case. You know your guilty as charged. Biblical Christianity does not require you to fix yourself while God watches, doling out cosmic pats on your head or tissing for your failures. In short, biblical Christianity doesn't plead with you, but announces to you what is true. You're saved by grace alone. Biblical Christianity simply puts Christ before you like Moses lifting the serpent and says, look. Look at verse 52, because this is exactly what Stephen does in verse 52. He lifts up before the religious heart, Christ. In 52, he says, And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. There is only one righteous one. I mean, let that sink in. Mom, Dad, while you're talking to your child because of their sin, you need to remember there is only one righteous one. And it's not you. Husband and wife, in the midst of your conflict, as you're trying to figure out who who was in the right and who was in the wrong, there is only one righteous one. And it's not one of you. Those of you that are in the midst of a real deep conflict with someone and you can't get over the fact that they've sinned against you, the pain's too much, the arguments in your head and your heart are just as easy as flicking on the TV, you relay over and over what was said to you, you relay over and over, ah, I should have said this, I'll get him next time. There's only one righteous one. And it's not you. And you know it's not that person, right? There's only one who has kept God's law. Externally and internally. Now the Israelites were used to God's law summarized in the Ten Commandments. And they externally, quote, did a good job. Externally, it's a lot easier to not commit adultery. Then in Doggone it, you get to the New Testament, and then Jesus and the apostles start filling them in a little bit and filling them out a little bit, and they said, yeah, you heard it said, don't commit adultery. And then they go a little deeper down into the heart, and they say, well, you know, if you lust, gentlemen, you commit adultery. Uh, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. I say to you, if you 
grumble in your heart at someone, you get angry at someone in your heart, you look down upon them in your heart, you berate them in your heart, and you haven't said a word. You hated them. You murdered them. There is only one righteous one. One. Okay? Now, what this means for the religious heart like me, it means I can stop ignoring my failure to keep the law in my heart while I pretend that I'm doing a good job in my behavior. Do you see that? For the religious heart, I can stop trying to hide my failures in my heart while I think I'm doing a pretty good job in my behavior. I also can stop trying to find God and His love and His blessing and His comfort and His acceptance and Him being okay with me and me feeling okay about myself. I can stop trying to base all of that on not sinning. Holding back the tides of sin in my life. And trying to keep some list or trying to maintain some spiritual feeling and emotion that makes me think He's, he's with me. The religious heart can stop pretending you're doing better than you are. Now, what the religious heart can start doing is resting in the righteousness of another. The religious heart can rest in God finding you in the righteousness of His Son. Now imagine... What would happen if we do? Well, what happens to those of us that don't know Jesus this morning, if you this morning rest in the righteousness of Jesus, what happens to you is called justification. It's a very powerful word, but it's a legal word. It's a legal word in that this is that God looks at you and he has put the righteousness of his own son around you. And he says as a judge in the high king of heaven, I justify you. I accept you. My favor is fixed upon you. You are right before me. And the same love that I love my son, that same love is now lavished on you. You're right in my eyes. You're accepted. And I did it, as Paul says, while you're ungodly. And those of us that are Christian knows that, that that's still the same news, isn't it? We think we're doing a, or think we're doing better, but we still recognize that God justifies the ungodly because you know what you're really like, and if you're married, you know what your spouse is really like. Now, Christian, if you get that, if you rest in the righteousness of another, it's everything. Peace with God because of Him. Acceptance with God because of Him. You're not moving and shaking to get God's attention. You have it. And it never moves off you because of what you do or don't do. Because you're findable or unfindable. Because you're lovable or unlovable. It never moves. Now, Some of you are thinking, well, what about the law? 
What about obedience? What about a changing life? What about pursuing holiness? And what's the answer? Ah, you've heard the Gospel rightly. Ah, you've heard the glory of grace truly if you now ask that question. If you ask that question before we just, what we just looked at, you're misusing the law. Okay? Now, that's our second person. The second person, so the first person, the Lord of glory finds you, and the first person the Lord of glory finds is the religious heart. Aren't you glad? I mean, you folks that are like me that think, gosh, you know, just another day's work, a little more discipline. Difficult, so what? Turn it on a little more. You know, we had a saying when I was overseas as a missionary. And this is our little law in our group. We used to say stuff like, you can't make it tough enough for me to complain. Day one, I was bickering like everybody else. I forget that, though. It's interesting. Now, the Lord of glory finds you. The first person, the religious heart. The second person is the obedient heart. The Lord of glory finds the obedient heart, the Lord of glory, this is the, the heart that's changing. This is the heart that's transforming. This is the heart that actually is pursuing holiness. The Lord of glory finds that person. Don't miss the order of obedience for Abraham. I want you to go to seven. Look at two through four. Now, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Verse four. Then he went out. Left everything. Obeyed God. Don't miss the order. Verse 2. The God of glory appeared to him. Now the God of glory is in the genitive case. This is for you Greek geeks. In the genitive case, which means it's a possessive case. Which means it's something like this. The God full of glory. The God consisting of glory. The God overflowing with glory. This God appeared to him. Holiness is God's intrinsic worth. It's the stuff you and I will can't see on our own. Holiness of God's his intrinsic worth. It's his infinite worth. Glory is his holiness being revealed. The glory of God is the outshining of God's perfections upon you. It's the sun rising. It's the outshining of all that God is that He chooses to reveal. And what we have here is that the God of glory appeared to Abraham. The God shining, outshining with infinite worth. A light of radiance, boundless beauty, unfathomable riches of grace, never ending mercy found Abraham. Moved forward to Abraham, advanced to Abraham while he just got done possibly participating at the Tower of Babel. 
And then he obeyed him. Do you see how simple it is? Don't miss it. God in his glory appears Abraham obeys. Don't mix that up. See the difference? What this means is Christian parent, nine-year-old child, Baylor student, Waco professional, any one of us here that are seeking to obey God, any one of us here that have any desire to pursue holiness, any Christian here that wants to change in their life, you cannot grab the law by itself to do it. If the law is over here, and you want to obey, and you want to grow in holiness, and you want to pursue life change, you cannot grab the law to do it. If you do, you're pushing Jesus off the throne. Because remember, it was his righteousness that got him there. And so if you try to grab the law by itself to obey God, to get holy, you're saying, Jesus, you're not the righteous one. And you don't really love the law, according to this passage. You love and you're intoxicated by the work of your own hands. The only way... You can keep the law and grow in holiness and go forward in obedience is by grabbing the gospel first. And as you hold the glories of Christ in your hand, it radiates and seeps into your heart. And the light of the glory of God shines before you. It hits your heart. It moves your heart. And now you grab the law Because you really love it. Because you love God and you love His law because He first loved you. Because He first loved you. And that's how you change. You change by grabbing the gospel and holding it in your hand until it unleashes power in your heart a new way of seeing, a new way of feeling and grabbing the law to keep it now. Do you see that? So please hear me. If you're struggling to obey God this morning in a certain area, parents, if you have children that are struggling to obey you and struggling to obey God in certain areas, Redeemer, church, as we as a church, if we're struggling to obey God in certain areas, The reason is we lack being gospel-gripped in that area. The reason is we lack being glory-satisfied in that area. The reason why is we lack being grace-driven in that area. That's the reason. We We need the God of glory to appear and recapture our vision And recapture our hearts. And so as you parent your children, 
put before them the glories of Christ. That's what you do. All right. The last, and we're going to end with this. The last person is the Lord of glory that the Lord of glory finds. Now, there are many others. I have no time to go to them. There's the faithful heart amidst difficulty. There's the mission heart. There's the preaching, teaching heart. Those of you that are in ministry, how do you preach and teach? Well, this is a good one. Um, there's the praying heart. There's all kinds of applications. We don't have enough time. Maybe I'll do another one on Christmas Eve, but we're going to stick to this last one, and it's the hurting heart. Okay? The hurting heart. My favorite writer in World Magazine is Andrea Sue. Right, Virginia? Sue or say? Sue. She tells of Susanna in last week's issue. She said, Susanna doesn't fit my theology. She's like Psalm 88. A chapter in the Bible you always hope won't be there the next time you open it. Some other psalms start poorly but have soaring endings. Psalm 88 has no ray of hope. Susanna's husband divorced her. Susanna's three strong sons in their 20s were all killed in a boating accident at the same time. Susanna's Christian daughter, after losing her father to divorce and losing her brothers to death, renounces her Christian faith, turns away from Jesus, and turns away from her mother. Susanna came by Andrea's room at a retreat for a chat. Andrea said, Sitting in my room with Susanna, I gave up all thought of saying a helpful word. Though that's why she had come. I was scandalized myself. I felt like David when God struck Uzzah because he touched the ark. Remember Uzzah? Remember the ark has been gone from Israel for so long. They've been with the Philistines. Well, they finally are bringing it back to Israel. Remember that? And David's leading this incredible worship service and everyone is happy and joyful and it's just an unbelievable time. And Uzzah is one of the guys carrying the ark. He wasn't a Levite, problem number one. The ark tips, he touches it, problem number two. And that was the last thing he did. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah and David was afraid of the Lord that day. Now I want you to read Acts 7-9 with me. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Go to Acts 7.34. I have seen, God speaking, I have seen the affliction of my people. He's talking to Moses who are in Egypt. And I've heard their groaning. And I've come down to deliver them. And now come, I'll send you to Egypt. Go over to verse 54 through 58. And now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. There is no place too desolate for God's presence. There is no place too severe and too hurting for the Lord of glory to find you. 
Brothers and sisters, it all comes down to this. This is how the sermon ends. This is how the chapter ends. It all comes down to this. The promise of God's presence. That's it. And those of you that are hurting this morning, that's all we get. And the Bible says, it's enough for you. God promises His presence. Now rest. Rest. Rest in the Lord of glory finding you.